Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Dale Alkis. Dale Alkis is president of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton, creator and host of the EWTN series, J.K. Chesterton, The Apostle of Common Sense, and publisher of Gilbert Magazine. He is the author of five books and has edited 11. He is a senior fellow of the Chesterton Library at London and has been called probably the greatest living authority on the life and work of J.K. Chesterton. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Registration is now open for our November 4th CLT. The CLT is a remotely proctored alternative to the SAT and ACT. Students who fill out an application to Franciscan University will receive a code to take the November 4th CLT for free. Head to our website, cltexam.com, to learn more. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, I am thrilled about our guest today. Maybe the podcast I've been looking forward to most uh, this fall. Uh, The one and only Dale Alquise is president of the Chesterton Society uh, and has also rolled out a number of Chesterton Academies over the past several years. Uh, Maybe America's, maybe the world's foremost uh, expert on my favorite author, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Dale, thanks so much for being with us. Jeremy, a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, so I'd love to, to start off and, and talk actually first about kind of your early uh, education. And of course, now you're you're a student of everything Chesterton ever wrote. Uh, but what, what were you like as a, as a young boy? Did you love school? Were you a voracious reader back then? I wouldn't call myself a voracious reader back then, but I, I certainly enjoyed school. I went to uh, a, a public school my, through high school um, and had a very good experience, I have to say. I, it was the schools were in pretty good shape back then, um, and you know, a thousand years ago when I went to uh, <laughs> the school. I I do have to say the one thing that I really gained from my public education was I learned how to read and write, especially how to write. And I'll mm-hmm. I'll never forget uh, and stop being grateful for the the gift I had of, of good teachers, especially one guy in high school who was a retired Air Force colonel who taught us how to write. <laughs> Love that. Um, and, and you've been called, Dale, uh, the, the greatest living authority on the life and work of G.K. Chesterton. Quite a statement. Uh, w- would you agree with that? Is there anybody else out there who has read literally every word of G.K. Chesterton? Well, when you say, is there anybody else who's read every word of G.K. Chesterton? Jeremy, there's no one who's read every word of G.K. Chesterton. So if somebody tells you, well, I've read all of Chesterton's writings, they're just lying to you. That's what they're doing, okay? But there are a few other uh, people who are clearly my good friends and associates who are very well-versed in Chesterton, and I'm I'm grateful to know them. Uh, One of them, however, is 99 years old, and he's been reading Chesterton since he was 16 years old. And I'm, I, I'm not going to say that I've 
ha- I haven't read as much as as he has, but I will say it, it takes about that long to read everything that Chesterton wrote. So I, I just did the math. If he's been reading Chesterton since he was 16, that would have been about the year Chesterton died. Yeah, he actually uh, he, he actually was born before Chesterton died. He never met Chesterton, but he he knew people who knew Chesterton very well. So he's he's very much a link to Chesterton himself. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so talk, talk, walk us through kind of this, this great love affair, Dale. When, when did you discover Chesterton? How did this whole thing begin? Well, I, uh, I was a big C.S. Lewis fan and it was because of uh, finding out that the, really the force behind C.S. Lewis was G.K. Chesterton that I mm-hmm. stumbled upon G.K. Chesterton. And uh, it was uh, an instantaneous love affair. I started by reading Chesterton's the, the, the book that C.S. Lewis most recommended of Chester's, which was The Everlasting Man. Yeah. And uh, realized that I was reading something unlike anything I'd ever read before. Mm-hmm. Someone who was putting it all together. I was very used to reading narrow writers who could focus on a good point and make a good point like C.S. Lewis himself. But Chesterton was bringing things together from a wide range of subject matter and discipline in in such an artistic way of weaving it together that it, it was uh, uh, an explosion in my brain. Mm. And I, I clearly realized that uh, I'd come upon a new force in, uh, in my life, but someone who I also realized should have been taught to me. I, I just discovered Chester right after graduating from high uh, from college. And I realized, okay, how did they manage to keep him a secret when they were teaching all these other thinkers and writers and here's someone who not only surpasses them in many ways but answers the very dilemmas that they bring up like the Nietzsche's and the Shaw's of the world you know the the clever skeptics here's someone who who could be as Mm. as witty and clever and as ingenious as they are but also have an answer so we're going to dig back into Chesterton uh, in just a minute, but but I want to talk for a bit also about, about Chesterton Academy. We have one here in Annapolis, and I'm, I'm not just saying this, Dale, but, but really maybe my favorite network uh, of schools. It's incredible what you have built, and they're exploding. I've heard now there's going to be like 60 next year, which is just wild. Um, but you, you co-founded the original Chesterton Academy. Um, so tell us about that, and then was there a vision for this to become like a whole network? Well, I can certainly answer that last question first, Jeremy. We had no idea that that this thing would explode the way it has when we mm-hmm. founded the first school. It was simply a very simple task that we put to, to ourselves. Let's put together a good Catholic classical school that we can send our own children to the kind mm-hmm. and, and give them the kind of education that we wish we could have had. Uh, and from all the things that I had learned about uh, education, especially classical education, from my travels around the country, be, you know, being a speaker uh, and, and a scholar invited to talk on Chesterton, I kept uh, running into great classical schools and I'm thinking, here's something from this school that I would like to use, and here's something from this school that I'd like to use. And that's how I sort of wove together the curriculum that, that we teach now. And uh, it, it was something that we really had a lot of inspiration for, but we, our great strength is that we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I love that story. And it's incredible that, it, that now there's going to be 60 of these 60 of these. Yeah. It's incredible. 
Um, and I, I went to the original. I've been, is it Adina, Adina? Yeah, we're, we're now in Hopkins, Minnesota, a different uh, location right next to Minneapolis. In fact, I'm sitting right now in the most interesting room in the school, Jeremy, as you can tell. This is the uh, the props and costume uh, department for the for our drama program. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. You've got some wigs and mannequins behind you. I, I didn't know if I should bring it up or not. It, it's an interesting background. <laughs> some fellow heads. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's fantastic. Okay, so so you launch. What year did you launch the original campus? 2008, Jeremy. 2008. And that now it's, it's just exploded like this. And when I toured, one of the things that jumped out at me, which I maybe didn't expect, was the focus on art. Uh, talk about that. Yes, uh, we we decided that um, we would not make art simply uh, an elective or would we make it a, a class that you take uh, once, one and done. But we were going to uh, have a four-year art program for studio art so all the students would learn how to draw and paint a skill that you can learn and then we would weave art history into the the practice of of graphic arts so that by their senior year these these students are are copying oil masterpieces we did the same thing with drama we're not going to just every kid if they want to be can try out for a play no every uh, sophomore, every junior, every senior is going to be in a play. It's a required class they take. And if their senior year, they're going to do a Shakespeare play. And, and, and they're going to learn how to get into a, uh, a, uh, a work of arts, you know, in this case, a play from the inside. You know, you can't really understand Shakespeare as well, reading it out of a book as you can from performing Shakespeare and learning the idea of of bringing all the arts together so that uh, a, 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 an actor has to learn how to declaim uh, a piece of writing and how to bring really the word into flesh. And then of course, music is also a requirement. All the kids sing for four years. That's so, great. We'll, we'll play a game here as we're chatting. Um, so I have the Chesterton quote in my head, uh, morality like art consists in drawing the line somewhere. I have no idea where that's from in Chesterton. So we'll play the game. Can you name name the book? Where is that from? It's from a, a Chesterton essay uh, from the Illustrated London News. It was collected. It's amazing in, that you know that. That is so <laughs> cool. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was collected into a, um, a, a a book of writings called All Things Considered. Oh, gosh. Okay. I, we're going to have a few more of those as we continue to go okay. here. Um so what was the experience like to starting a classical school and then expanding it? What were some of these kind of memorable experiences early on for you? Well, yeah, as I, as I say, the, the, the great experience, uh, the great part of the experience is that we, we did all this stuff without knowing what we were doing. And so we didn't know what we weren't supposed to do. And that gave us really great freedom uh, to, to do things that we thought, well, why isn't anyone else doing this? Uh, and, and one of the main things, Jeremy, was to create a curriculum that was really integrated, that, so that what you were studying in one class, it was connected to what you're studying in another class, rather than yeah. everybody's bringing their own expertise to the board and their own class, and, and history is going to be taught in its watertight compartment over here, and there'll be an art class over here, and uh, no connection. So students not only are unable to figure out what they're, what are they, what was the meaning behind what they're studying, but how is it, is it connected to everything else that they're studying too? And, and so we're trying to com, com, 
really create complete thinkers, which is what mm. we call G.K. Chesterton, a complete thinker. And, um, and also the idea of um, teaching philosophy for four years, something that just isn't done in high school at all. But if you don't, uh, mm. if you don't teach reason from the very beginning, uh, it's really hard to pick up on it later. You know, logic and um, cr uh, cl clear uh, moral reasoning and uh, rational thought is something that has to be really laid down as a foundation for a student before they can even study anything mm -hmm. else. So, and that's, that's, it's tied to math. You know, math isn't taught by itself. It's taught, uh, we teach Euclidean geometry along with philosophy, so that it's a matter of problem solving. Mm. Love that. Uh, and and we'll, we'll go back to our game real quick. And this is not, none of this was in the show notes, people. This is all just kind of ad lib here. So uh, it, it may be misunderstood, but I think of this Chesterton quote when you're talking there, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. Now, you were not, you didn't do it badly, but, you, but I love your humility and kind of you were figuring it out as, as you went. Um, wh where does that quote come from? Uh, that's from the book, What's Wrong with the World? Oh, man, two yes. for two. You're two yeah, for two. I think we're doing is worth doing badly. And of course, it is the most misunderstood of his quotes, but it, it reflects the whole Chesterton paradox that it, it, things are just the opposite of what you expect with Chesterton because life and truth is the opposite of what you expect. But it's the praise of the amateur. That's what that hmm. line is about. It, if, if something's worth doing, of course, it's worth doing well. And yeah, we'll pay the professional to do it as as good as it possibly can be done. But it's also worth doing if you're an amateur and, and you don't do it as well as the professional. You do it because you love it. That's that's why you do it. That's why it's worth doing. Love that. Love that. Okay. So so can I can I keep using that quote if I'm if I'm cleaning out the garage and doing a, a somewhat lazy job of it? I always use the quote at every opportunity. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Okay, so then. What tell us how this this merged into? Let's make another one of these and let's plant more. And now there's conferences and a whole network. So walk us through a timeline. When did you launch the second school? And sure, um, and I, that's this is a, a wonderful thing. I love to correct. We didn't launch any of those other schools. They all came to us and they all launched themselves. That's that's the most <laughs> okay. amazing thing about the growth of the Chesterton Schools Network is that we mm -hmm. have not planted these schools. They have discovered us and they say we want to do what you're doing, and we had to figure out okay. Let's help these schools get started. So we packaged up our curriculum and, uh, and you know, so here's the curriculum, but just as important, and this was really the key thing. This is, this is why you have women involved. For instance, my wife, you know, she, she says, yeah, okay, eggheads. Yeah, you got your curriculum going, but how are they actually going to run the school? I mean, how are they going to, you know, collect tuition and stuff? And so we also, uh, you know, packaged up the templates of how to run a school, how to put it together. And that's, that's the attraction of, of the Chester models that people can come to and, and get it all. They don't have to reinvent anything. We have a successful model. It does work and we just show them how to do it, but they do it themselves. And then they join the network and we all work together. We actually share information and, and, and the network just keeps getting stronger because everybody's working together. But, they use the same curriculum and the same templates of how to run the school. And that's what, that's the whole strength. So the first one came to us in about 
15, so about seven, seven years ago, okay? Seven or eight years ago is when the, the second school started. So this whole- And now there are 60. That is yes, insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that's that's the most that's the most amazing thing. It's really only about seven or eight years ago that the second one started. Well, the the one here, I mean, in Annapolis is thriving. Uh, Azine and Bill Cleary are doing amazing work. And you know what's incredible, Dale is, is you know sometimes I'll hit up the eight a.m. mass over at St. John Newman, and you, that's where the Chesterton students are, and they're in, in mass. And I talked to an elder, an elderly gentleman one time, and and he was so encouraged. He'd gone to mass daily mass there for years. He was so encouraged by seeing these young people with him every morning. He, he was glowing. It has an impact on the whole community. Um, talk, us about, talk to us about this um, the decision for, for daily mass. And this, this, is, this is very, it's not the norm at, at Catholic schools. Yeah, well, it was one of the things that we agreed on right from the very beginning that we'd have daily mass because, um, you know, for us, the center of the curriculum is the incarnation. So, uh, the philosophy is that it's the incarnation that we're teaching and, and that every, every other truth is going to be connected to that truth. And you know, the growth of Western civilization is connected to that truth. Um, when, when Christianity, as it were, baptized the pagan philosophers, they, they got to uh, have the opportunity to use reason to, to support uh, the faith. And, and the two started going together. Well, all of literature and the story and history, all these things are connected. And it all somehow comes back to that one central truth, that one central meaning. Well, we act it out each day when we go to Mass. We, 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 uh, we celebrate the incarnation. And we, uh, uh, just as our, our curriculum emanates from one truth, the day emanates from that one experience as well. Um, and it is, it's, it's a great, we, we used to have mass at the beginning of the day, but our schedule now is such that we have it in the middle of the day, right before lunch. And so now it, it really is the middle of the day, literally. And it's a time for the students to take a pause and reflect. There's, there's kids chanting uh, Gregorian chant at the mass. And that's why the, the public loves to, to come to our masses. They're just reverential. But they're peaceful. So beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for the work you're doing. Um, you. All right. So we're going to go back to our game. And let's see if you can go three for three now. And I had no idea I was going to do this until we started. It was just an idea I had like two seconds ago. And now we're, we're having some fun with it. But I've got a question to follow. So, so this quote is, the way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. That's from a, an essay called The Advantages of Having One Leg. This is crazy. This is amazing. It was, it was in a, a, it's a Daily News uh, essay, one of his articles from the Daily News. But yeah, that's a great, great line. The way to love everything is to realize it might be lost. So I think about that quote in light of, of this whole classical renewal movement, which I see Chesterton Academy and now your whole network as being part of this movement. Um, can you speak about kind of the, the larger movement as a whole? Uh, it, it seems like it's it's just coming together. Uh, is there a tipping point that you're, you're seeing in the next few years where classical is just kind of mainstream? Well, it, there's, there's of course, no way to predict it. To, to quote another Chesterton line, I know as much about the future as you do, which is nothing, right? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we don't know where this is going to go. We certainly didn't know it was going to come to the point that we're at right now. But certainly there is this momentum. And as our unfortunate public education continues to fail, uh, the, the growth of, of classical education seems to be uh, just ripe, ripe for, for mm. plenty of growth right now. 
when when students don't know how to read or write or do simple math and are getting diplomas and are going to yeah. college in this in this state of of, of affairs, you know, this the the, the, the system's gonna just bust apart. Mm. But what we're doing is we are providing a real hope for the future. And in a way, we're we're rebuilding a civilization that's already coming apart because if we don't do it, yeah, it all will be lost. And mm. uh, I think parents and students and communities that that uh, are, are discovering both classical education and and what we're doing with the, with the Chesterton model are, are they understand they get that this is this is the way to save the future and, and save our civilization. Mm. All right, another quote, another question, uh, and this I think Dale, this may be the quote that, that impacted me maybe more than any of the ones I've done so, so far. Again, don't know where it comes from. Uh, there are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people. Yeah, what a great quote that is. That's also from uh, uh, Illustrated London News essay. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a so terrific incredible. line. Yeah, it's, I, it's one of my favorites, too. Um, you know, and, that, and I think that was also connected in, in that collection, All Things Considered, um, is the other one. But... Uh, there's a core in a sense there's a corollary to that quote um which is there's only one subject (laughs) and it's a it's a fascinating subject uh and and everything's going to somehow come back to that subject and if we aren't interested in it yeah it's our own fault uh yeah so (laughs) I, i was thinking about that quote in light of my own experience teaching in public schools for 10 years and i feel like there's an an epidemic of of apathy of boredom. Students are bored out of their minds. Everything that's connected to meaning, transcendental ideas, philosophy, big questions has kind of been gutted, removed. Um, you were were asked, uh, appointed, I believe, uh, to the uh, presidential appointment uh, from, from Donald Trump uh, on the National Board of Education Sciences. Um, can you speak about how this happened and what is what is your work there like? Well, I have no idea how it happened, but it did happen. I guess, it, you know, my my work with the Chesterton Schools Network was discovered by uh, a certain person who told another person and it got to the Office of Presidential Personnel and when they were uh, making the, the appointments to this board. But I, I will say this while we were waiting to uh, to, to have the, the first meeting called uh, and the, the, the months kept passing. I just got a letter recently from the uh, White House uh, asking me to resign from the board. And that if I didn't resign by 6 p.m. that night, I'd be terminated. The letter finished by saying, thank you for your service to our country. So um, this 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 nonpartisan advisory board, it has just been totally partisan now. But uh, the. the, um, I will say it's the, the final chapter in this story has not been written because what happened is uh, the new administration basically jettisoned all of Trump's appointments, which has never been done before. Wow. And I think there's there's going to be a, there's going to be a little more stink raised about this because they 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 made some real bonehead moves. I, I have plenty to do, so I'm not too worried about um, not having enough to do. <laughs> mm. uh, but but. Uh, I, I guess the the Chester line that, that strikes me about this is, you know, I, I, w- I would have been in a really good position to, to evaluate 
but because I'd have all this data in front of me about public education, because that's what this board would have done. And it would be, then be making recommendations and, and, you know, evaluative criticisms to the uh, Department of Education. It was, a, it was a really good opportunity that, of course, has been taken away. However, in the meantime, we're, we're still building all these uh, classical schools. But one of Chester's lines is this. The one thing that is never taught in any of our public schools is this, that there is a whole truth of things and that in knowing it and speaking it, we are happy. Mm. All right. So we we don't teach a whole truth of things. We only teach partial truths. And we also don't teach kids how to be articulate, how to express the truth. And because they don't know a whole truth and they can't express it, guess what? They're very unhappy, very unhappy. And you know what we're doing? We're teaching happiness. Classical learning is really teaching happiness, which is what everybody really is looking for. Hmm. You know, even though I, I don't think it is the case, I mean, in my, in my time, you know, at, at Louisiana State uh, and, and in the public school arena, there's a, a big emphasis on being open-minded. We want to have kids that are open-minded. Chesterton had some things to be, uh, some words about open-mindedness. I'll quote one of them. We'll, we'll, we'll see if you can go five for five before we end this game here. Uh, there's a couple quotes I'm thinking about, but one of them is, do not be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Where is that? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's not quite a Chesterton quote, Jeremy. Oh, uh, that's okay. actually a paraphrase of one there. Right? <laughs> you know, he says the, the, the purpose of being open-minded is to shut it again on something, something solid. solid. He says the, yep. the object of an open mind is like a, an open mouth is to hmm. uh, shut it again, to close your mouth or your mind on something solid. That's, that's the, the quote, it has been, um, you know, uh, it turned around, shaken out, so that it came out the way you said it. You know, Don't be so open about your brains fall out. But the, the the quote that he actually did say is from his autobiography. Just just so you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I love the way he begins that autobiography, uh, and I, I didn't get far into it, but but questioning, I think kind of making fun of the modern sensibilities, questioning his own name and kind of existence uh, and whatnot. Um, and, and I think, you know, you, you spoke at a, at a couple of the CLT events. You spoke at our New Year's party. The room was in stitches. We could hear people laughing when we were downstairs. But what you're doing is just bringing Chesterton to them. Um, talk to us about Chesterton's wit and humor. Yeah, I mean, Chesterton's, I think the source of humor is that it's human and it's also humble. They all come from the same root word. And, uh, you know, true humor is very humble. It's not this uh, sarcastic, cynical, mentally detached wit that can be just biting and stinging. This is, this is the, he's, he's humorous because he shares all the human experiences with us and we can laugh truly with him and he laughs with us and he knew, he knew how to make fun of himself and he gets us to not take ourselves (laughs) so seriously. And that's the, that's the source of, of some of his great wit is, is knowing what to take seriously and, and knowing what not to take so seriously. He says, seriousness is not a virtue, says Chesterton. It's a, that's a great line. Uh, and, but, but I would say um, because, because he uh, uses uh, wit and humor to express the truth, some people don't take Chesterton seriously, but he says humorous is simply, uh, you know, it, it's to, to say four, four sheep, plus four sheep is eight 
seem serious, but for some reason, if you say four monkeys, but plus four monkeys is eight, people think you're not being serious. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk, talk books a minute. We always conclude the anchor podcast talking about kind of your, your favorite book, the book that has been most formative of me. I'm wondering if that's everlasting man, but before that, I'm, I'm just so curious to know your answer here. You're so immersed in Chesterton. Again, you know, we've done this game. You've gotten every question right. Even when I didn't quote something accurately, you knew that, which is amazing. Um, but but have you read, do you think you've read less of other authors or would you say maybe even more because of Chesterton? You know, Chesterton always makes you want to read someone else. He'll, he'll start to uh, make a reference to uh, some piece of literature, even if it's well-known or obscure, and you, you want to go look it up and see mm-hmm why he enjoyed it so much he he, he expounds on you go, okay that's inviting and i want to go find that book so chester is always pointing me to other texts to read the only disappointing thing about those texts jeremy is they're not written by chester today mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so Dale, a book that had a really profound impact on me a book that i i've read parts of for years but finally sat down and read it through this year was lewis's abolition of man and as soon as I finished reading it, I started over and read it a second time. I believe it's early 50s. I thought it was the most insightful read I, I've seen in terms of, of the new education. Lewis, in some ways, was prophetic in yeah. terms of where things were going with education. Um, would Chesterton ha- have nuanced any of the ideas in there? Or do you think they're pretty pretty much on board? And- well, I'll have to say this. Uh, and I, 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 I always make a point of saying this. C.S. Lewis got all his ideas from G.K. Chesterton. Um, <laughs> So when you're reading C.S. Lewis, you're just reading someone who's read a lot of Chesterton. He's just basically restating what Chesterton's arguments are. And I think his insights, both into uh, modern education and the, what, you know, this, the, the, great, the great void in thinking that has been created from modern philosophy, those ideas all come from Chesterton. The abolition of man is full of Chestertonian ideas. Would Chester have added to it? It's C.S. Lewis adding to Chesterton. That's what you're reading. <laughs> Love that. All right, all right. Um, so, so final question here. We always end, and, and you're, there's an audience here who, um, you know, maybe they've never read any Chesterton at all. Uh, I was 22 uh, at the time. I, I, uh, I was, I was a pretty diehard reform person, and a buddy said, "You've got to read this book. I'm mailing it to you." And it was Orthodoxy, and it changed my life. I remember sitting in a laundromat in New York City, and it was snowing. And I had never read anything like this. It opened up a world. So if you're going to start somebody on Chesterton, well, or, or let's, ask, let's ask you that question first. First book for somebody who's like, all right, I've heard good things. Where do I go first? Well, I mean, Orthodoxy and Everlasting Man are clearly the two pillars of Chesterton's writings. They're both just outstanding books that really pull things together. The only trouble with reading Orthodoxy is that every line in the book is going to make you stop and think. And there's so many quotable lines that you're going to miss his whole argument because all you've done is just underline an entire book and not know what it's about. Right. So you have mm-hmm. to really go back and read it again and study it some more and, and figure out what the argument he's making uh, is in the book. But yeah, it is a, that's a life-changing book. Certainly everlasting man was the, the first book that I read okay. uh, put me on a new course in my life. Um, and so th- those are essential Chesterton books to read. However, I always recommend people start with Chesterton essays if they really want to get pure Chesterton and not get uh, bogged down or distracted. Read a, read a six or eight Chesterton essays, and that'll get you the 
the so, essence. So tremendous trifles is that one? Oh, that's a great collection. We also we also the Chesterton Society compiled a book of uh, of the best essays of Chesterton, and, and it's published by Ignatius. It's called um, In Defense of Sanity. That's a good collection of essays. How he begins orthodoxy uh, as well. So so maybe Dell, this is well. There's probably a lot of things wrong with me, but I I got to tell you, uh, orthodoxy. I reread it every year. Everlasting Man, I read it once, and I may go back, but it wasn't, it was It was not orthodoxy. In fact, it didn't resonate in the same ways. Maybe I didn't understand a lot of it. Um, and you've talked to so many people about Chesterton. Uh, have you heard that feedback before? It seems like his writing style had changed a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Uh, I I will say this. I've, I've talked with people who... Uh who are orthodoxy people and people who are everlasting mad people. Uh, clearly there's two camps. What one would see would be about orthodoxy is how he got to where he was. Everlasting man is where, where it was. He got what he got there. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be the, but I'll tell you, I, I prefer orthodoxy to everlasting man too. I actually re- reread orthodoxy every year as well. But I do reread uh, Everlasting Man on a regular basis, and I teach the book every year too. And Everlasting Man is is definitely the pr- more profound work. There's no okay. question about it. I, I, I've heard, and you're, you're going to know the latest on this. I, I've heard from some folks that maybe they're you know cause at work for his canonization in the Catholic Church. I've heard others joke that maybe he he drank a little too much bourbon and had a few too many cigars to be a serious candidate. Is that is that a where are things with that? Uh, the uh, things are are proceeding slowly. Uh, it's 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 definitely being taken seriously by the Catholic Church. There's a uh, a group of people who are, um, are who are promoting that the cause be opened. The one one bishop has chosen not to open the cause, but other bishops have expressed interest in in opening the cause. Uh, Chester never drank bourbon. He he drank wine. It's a different, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, smoking is not a sin. Just so you know. So, <laughs> but but uh, at his 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 great size possibly was due to a glandular disorder, but it certainly wasn't due to gluttony. Uh, uh, but you know we're all sinners, and you don't have to, you know you have to have um, a profound holiness. But Chesterton says the definition of a saint is someone who knows he's a sinner. So, uh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And then final question for you. We, we've talked about orthodoxy and everlasting man, but is, is there something maybe that other folks don't get to in the, in the Chesterton canon that has really impacted you? What, what is your, or even outside of that, even outside of Chesterton, kind of your number one book that has impacted you the most? Well, you know, I, I I know that I would be required to say that the number one book that's influenced me most is is a Chesterton book. And certainly, as I say, Everlasting Man did change the course of my life. But I I would not be honest if I didn't say that the most influential book in my life has been the Bible. Okay. And uh, that's the I, I that's a book I always keep coming back to. I was I was well versed in the Bible growing up as a Baptist, and. Uh, it, it's not only a great story; it is, it is, it is the daily bread. And mm. I, I never get tired of, of opening scripture. It's a great book to teach, but it's also one to learn from over and over again. Bill, uh, th- thank you so much. Thank you as well for your support of CLT over the years. We're, we're super honored to have you on our, our academic board. Uh, I feel like the closest I will ever get to, to spending time with Chesterton is spending time with you. Uh, you just kind of emanate Chesterton emanates from you for sure. So. 
Well, Jeremy, thank you for the great work you do with the CLT. What you do is very important too, and I'm, I'm grateful for you, but God bless you. God bless. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.